This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Well, we've got another exciting edition of Indictment Watch, friends, and today's news turns on the remarkable, and some say reckless, testimony of Mark Meadows, who rolled the dice on Monday by taking the stand in the sprawling Fulton County election subversion trial. So for roughly three and a half hours on Monday, Meadows testified about his job at the White House and the chaotic post-2020 election period when Donald Trump, his former boss, sought to overturn the election result to stay in power. Meadows sought to convince a judge that as Trump's right-hand man at the White House, his various attempts to block his 2020 election loss to Joe Biden were part of his official government duties. If the judge agrees, the trial could end up moving from state court to federal court, a much more advantageous legal spot for Meadows. That would dramatically upend the case brought by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis just two weeks after the grand jury indicted Trump, Meadows, and 17 others on racketeering charges related to efforts to subvert the 2020 election results. What unfolded in Atlanta on Monday was shocking by legal standards. Criminal defendants, well, they often take advantage of their constitutional right and decline to testify as part of their legal proceedings. And even smarter defendants decline to speak publicly about their case while it's still ongoing. So putting Meadows on the stand gave prosecutors the chance to question him about the events after the 2020 election in a setting where his words can be used both against him and the other defendants in the Fulton County case, not to mention in special counsel Jack Smith's federal indictment of Trump for election subversion. And Meadows wants to move the case out of state court badly, arguing that he falls under a federal immunity claim extended in certain contexts to individuals who are prosecuted or sued for alleged conduct that was done on behalf of the United States government or was tied to their federal position. But the overriding opinion remains that overturning the Constitution and engaging in racketeering is not part of Meadows' portfolio as White House Chief of Staff. The upcoming decision by U.S. District Judge Steve Jones, an Obama appointee, matters to all of the 19 co-defendants, including the former president, whose lawyers are expected to file a similar motion as Meadows'. Four additional defendants have already made the motion to move their cases to federal court, too. It's an uphill climb for Meadows and, frankly, for all of the defendants. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. If that happens, Willis will find her case snatched from under her. But experts say it's unlikely to happen for a number of reasons. So... We got a special guest today, my friend, mentor, and moral compass, Norm Eisen, the former Obama ethics czar. Norm's prescient op-eds for the New York Times have predicted what would happen in all four indictments every step of the way. 
He joins me today to unpack what happened on Monday in Georgia and the likelihood of Meadows and any of the other defendants having their cases moved to federal court. So let's bang the gavel because it's indictment watch. Okay, so Norm, I have to start with Trump's scheduling of legal issues that are going, and it is seriously nothing shy of a nightmare situation. I mean, it's basically nonstop for the next six, seven, eight months. And of course, we all know what he's going to complain about. This is interfering with you know, his um, campaign, and it's all obviously part of preventing him from becoming, again, president of the United States of America. But one of the problems that I'm beginning to see, and I'm seeing it personally, is that there will be an overlap. How does the system deal with something as unprecedented as this? Well, Judge Tanya Chetkin, who has the federal 2020 election interference case, um, said it best uh, in her um, Monday hearing on scheduling that case, which she did not to boast, as I predicted, for the first quarter of 2024. I have a TV clip saying the trial will be in March on CNN. Um, She said it best, Michael, that it's like trying a professional athlete or anybody else who has a busy (laughs) external schedule. Um, They're just going to have to work around it. We've seen other uh, cases involving um, extremely important individuals, CEOs, political figures, and others, um, captains of industry, and you deal with it. And that's what Trump is going to have to do. It's going to be complex, but it might not be that complex because the guy seems to be running away with the Republican nomination. I think he's running into a, uh, I think he's running into a uh, tsunami in the general election. Um, talk about uh, pissing into the wind. He's going to be pissing into hurricane force winds with his criminal baggage. But um, you know, he may after Super Tuesday, he may have locked up the nomination, so he has plenty of time for the trial. And indeed, this one, jury selection is right before Super Tuesday. So, uh, you know, the judge will say, well, he doesn't have to be here for jury selection, just as long as he's here for the trial. But there are all sorts of already conflicts in the schedule, and they have not taken into consideration what's already out there and already scheduled. So let me give you an example. September 6th of 2023, another less than two weeks away, Donald Trump is going to be required to yet again return to Georgia for his arraignment at the Fulton County Superior Court, where he's going to have to enter his plea. And we all know that will be a plea of not guilty. But on September 6th, Donald Trump was supposed to be in Miami, Florida, for the deposition, the court-ordered deposition in the federal case where he filed the $500 million lawsuit against me. That's already been scheduled now 
for at least the last six weeks. That's unfair. And why should the Georgia, which is a state case, why should this arraignment date, which is brand new, why should that take precedence over a federal court case that's already scheduled and court ordered? Well, um, the, uh, in terms of the arraignment, it's a good example, and the questions are good ones. Those arraignments are waivable. So Donald Trump does not have to be arraigned. Now, I think he's going to choose to be arraigned, Michael, and I'll tell you why. He is turning. This is why there's not, not really, I think, insurmountable conflicts here. His biggest day of fundraising in his entire campaign, I believe, came after his latest uh, booking. I think he raised something uh, uh, in the 24 hours. Seven million dollars, they said. Seven point one million dollars. (laughs) Yeah, seven million dollars, something approximately. Um, in the 24 hours after that, he's turned the election stuff into campaign stuff. So he doesn't want, he probably doesn't want a wave arrangement because he'll raise another $7 million. He also doesn't want to be deposed. He does not um, want to be deposed in my specific case. In fact, in the case that he has against me for the $500 million, the judge already let them know that you cannot just continuously take the fifth because one of the claims that he makes is that by being deposed, it could open him up to um, problems in some of the legal issue with some of the legal yeah. issues in some of the other cases. Well, and that he wants to include dead. his um, writing you, and self-incrimination. You tell, use pol- more polite language, but that's BS and you tell his lawyers that, and I know your lawyers well, because you are talking to him about stuff that happened long ago. His current criminal exposure, there is the Brad case, but his current criminal exposure is really, um, is really his deepest exposure is for the 2020 election interference, not the events of 2016 and 17 Um your case, that your case is principally focused on. Well, no, hold on. No, no, no. He's suing me in this case yeah. for $500 million for a multi, it's a very broad uh, damages claim. One of the things he's also obviously very concerned about is the October 2nd, 2023 trial in um, New York, uh, the Trump Organization Civil Yes, fraud the civil lawsuit, case. Yes, the civil uh, fraud brought lawsuit. by our unsinkable Attorney General uh, Tisha James. She's so great. he's concerned. Yeah, that she is. He's very concerned that some of the questions, and he's right in thinking this, uh, will touch on him and the Trump Organization manipulating property valuations and tax breaks and stuff like that, which. Again, you're thinking like Norm Eisen, the genius lawyer, right? He's not thinking that way. He's thinking he cares more about money than anything else. Yeah, these are the, these I did cabin by pointing to the, you're right, the New York, I think of them as the Bragg issues, right? Bragg investigated that stuff too. But you're right, it includes the civil. 
you know, you typically can, you typically do not get into self-incrimination issues relating to a civil case. Indeed, if you take the Fifth Amendment in a civil case, you get an adverse inference. In this, so I think that that civil case, very important case, is a more tenuous Fifth Amendment problem for him. He should not be able, and nor does he need to get out of depositions and the like entirely. He simply, everybody has to, it is an unprecedented situation. So, you know, maybe he goes to look at, he was in and out of that court in 20 minutes, right, Michael? So Mm -hmm. he can go, he has his scheduled time in Atlanta, he gets on the plane, he comes back, starts the deposition the same day, maybe a little later. Right? Maybe you do it that night. You do it the next morning. He should not be exploiting this schedule to get out of his other legal obligations. And that's what Chutkin said. And she went so far as to call Judge Marchant in the Bragg case in New York and to say, Judge, I'm thinking of, we don't know the exact conversation, but it probably went something like this. And this is an example, it's a microcosm of what happens has to happen across the board, including with the, uh, you know, including with, uh, with the September conflict that we're talking about. Hey, Judge, um, I'm thinking of scheduling this case for the beginning of March 2024, like Norm Eisen suggested on CNN. <laughs> and, um, and Judge Marshawn says, um, I understand. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Um, federal, state, comedy, thank you for checking in. If necessary, I'll kick my case over. Let's see how it all goes. Thanks, Judge. So, you know, that's a microcosm that has to happen everywhere. And if you and other litigants are the victims of Trump, if he says, well, Michael, I'll sit for a deposition, his lawyers say, I'll sit for a deposition in the Cohen case like they tried. My former, we practice criminal law together, John Lauro. I want a 2026 deposition. That's no. what he wanted in my is. The court wanted 90 days after the election. Shut that down. So my thesis is it can all be worked out Trump won't want to, but the judges have, and everybody else have to do what Jack Smith did here. He pressed for speed. Alvin Bragg said, um, uh, in the interest of justice, he was willing to let his trial date lapse. Kudos to Alvin Bragg. The judges talked; they made it work. That need that has that kind of thing has to happen a hundred times between now and. Uh, the last of the scheduled trials, which is May 2024 for the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And yeah, just so my listeners get a full understanding. So as I said, September 6th, he just has to go for the arraignment. And you're right, he could waive the appearance and then just put it in, um, whether it's by Zoom or he could put it in through his counsel. It does make a difference. But his real schedule starts on September 27th, where he has the second GOP presidential primary debate. And once again, I'm certain that he won't show up. There's no reason. He actually won the first debate without even showing up. 
But the legal stuff begins October 2nd of 2023. And that's the um, start of the civil trial in the baseline $250 million lawsuit by Tish James accusing Trump and Trump Org of, again, you know, manipulating property values, tax breaks, and so on. How long do you think that trial is going to last? Two weeks? No. I think it's going to last for three, I would say three, I don't know, four to five weeks, let's say. I think that the... Okay. I think the prosecution probably takes two to three weeks to put on their case. And the defense takes a week to two to rebut. So that's, you know, that's in the three to five, four to six range. So let's just say it's four. That brings you now to November 2nd. The problem is... The first trial in Georgia begins October 23rd of 2023. And that's, again, the schedule for the trial for all 19 defendants, which, of course, includes Donald. So we have a problem of about 10 days there. Now, I don't believe that the Georgia case, especially the one including Trump, will take place starting that date. But then again... You never, you never know. What did they do in that specific case? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, again, it it might look very like, it might look very. Li- I think these these judges are going to start talking to each other. Is the answer okay? That is the main, um, that is the main challenge. Is that the courts have to manage their dockets, and the right way to do it, the legal way to do it, is to follow the Chutkin Marshawn example. So the courts talk to each other, and then the judges talk to the litigants. So in this case, you might very well get the judge say, "Hey, we, you know, we can't do it exactly here. Can we do it over here? Slightly move the schedule." Then Donald Trump says, well, wait a minute. I have to be in court. You know, I have to be campaigning. So the judge say, says, well, we're going to make an exception for you. You have your own plane, don't you? Here's the, we're going to do four trial days a week. We're going to have a schedule. We're going to end court. We'll do court every day until three o'clock. Then you can go campaign. You work it out, Michael. It's like anything else. Well, no, because then... And this is the point I'm trying to make. So even if they push, you know, one of those two issues, either the uh, Tish James case off to December, okay, that, as you said, is a four, six week type trial. That brings you right into the E. Jean Carroll civil defamation suit, which begins January 15th of 2024. But the problem with that case is that that's the beginning of the Iowa caucus. And then if you start on that, that, let's say, is another three, four weeks. But like the first one where he didn't show up, maybe this one he says, well, I want to show up or what have you. I don't know. But then he also has the start on January 29th of the trial in that pyramid scheme class action lawsuit. Right. Um, You know, that's that. uh, uh, ACN, I think it was in or whatever. Then, you know, he has primaries in February between Nevada and Michigan. And then again, 
Why does he have <laughs> to March- show up? He didn't show for E. Jean Carroll. Why does he have to show up for the civil cases, any of them at all? That's his choice. That's his choice. He has, he should not have done things that triggered legal accountability. Now that he has, he can be in court, he can come the first day and not be there. He can get an instruction to the jury on where he is. For the civil cases, he doesn't have to be there. I, you know, that's ultimately his problem, his choice. The courts will allow him to be absent. You know, his worst month that he really needs to start to deal with is the month of March, because on March 4th is when um, it's the start of the criminal trial in Jack no. Smith's case uh, related this, to... No, no, no. It's only the start of jury selection. The judge did it that way purposely to let Super Tuesday happen. Michael, if Donald I Trump get that. looks now, he's leading by 30 points. If he runs away on Super Tuesday, he doesn't have to campaign after that. Okay, well, there you have it. Because he may then, have the delegates. You know, then on top of that, you know, he also has, let's assume, um, you know, that case is going to start to move the Jack Smith, um, uh, that that specific case. But that interferes with the March 25th, 2024 case, which allegedly was set in stone uh, for the Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg case. You are properly putting me through my paces. You're forcing me, as the system is going to be forced to do, to answer these questions. But that we, and so I'll answer that one too. Then I'm going to summarize. Your, this is the best cross examination by anybody uh, that I've had on these issues. I'm going to summarize the principles that will guide us through these months. But that March case is almost certainly going to yield. Alvin Bragg said it would yield in the interest of justice. Judge Chutkin talked to Judge Marchant, and that case is going to move, and that's okay. It's important. It was the gateway drug. It was an election interference case. But um, the 2020 federal case is the most important, including because it has some of the largest jail terms together with Georgia. So let me summarize how we're going to deal with this. Number one, the judges have got to consult with, with each other to minimize the burden. Number two, we have to very liberally allow Donald Trump what he doesn't want to be to have his choice. But it is his choice to show up or not, particularly in civil cases, as he failed to do already, even before the campaign system, uh, campaign season in E. Jean Carroll won. Uh, Number three, the criminal cases have to take precedence over the civil cases. And number four, we have to stack the criminal cases in order of seriousness, not in order of first file. and uh, number five, judges have to consult. Judges have to make the decisions, ultimately, including talking to each other. They have to consult with each other. Then they have to talk to the parties. But they can't let Donald Trump's silly demands, I'll do it in 2026, take precedence. They have to decide what is right. If Donald Trump won't be reasonable, they have to be reasonable. That doesn't mean rolling over for prosecutors. They wanted a January trial in the federal case, um, and uh, Judge Chutkin said no. So those five principles, oh, my God, Michael, we should co-author an op-ed. The five principles to guide Trump's legal chaos. 
He just worked them out. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to get off that because you're right. I have to finish cross-examining the great Norm Eisen. I want to talk to you for a second about Mark Meadows' testimony the other day. As he attempted to move the trial from Fulton County to federal court. And the prevailing view here is that Meadows took a huge gamble. I mean, that this is a real serious risk for him. If you would, for my listeners, what has he opened himself up to here? And why do you think it was a bad move? If, in fact, you think it was a bad move. Um, I, I don't think it was a bad move. Um, I think that um, they had to, um, they had to, you know, they, they, they want to get to federal court. Getting to federal court is extremely important to them um, because you get, they feel, you get a marginally better jury pool, you get a fairer trial of the key issues. Um, you get a better shot at having the case kicked on immunity. You wrong foot. This was very, very important to them. Um, you wrong foot the DA. Her, the DA's home court uh, is, um, is the district court. Um, and I, I think that you... Um, you know, you, you it's very, very important to do all of the different things uh, that Meadows wants to do. But it comes so he has to you can't you can't get removal unless you prove the case. The burden is on Meadows in almost every successful removal. The federal officer testifies at the evidentiary hearing. He had to do it now. That's the upside. Here's the downside. Here are the dangers that he uh, exposes himself to. Um, he admitted that he was in all the meetings with Trump. We didn't know that. We don't have all the information. So he, he gave himself more criminal exposure. He said he passed messages to Trump. He put himself more in the conspiracy, Michael. Um, he said that he recommended that Trump reach out to Watson. That's one of the criminal acts. Watson, the uh, uh, Secretary of State official who works for Raffensperger in Georgia. That's one of the criminal acts. He admitted um, that he had no reason to doubt Attorney General Barr's assessment that the fraud allegations were meritless. So he put himself uh, in a worse position on intent um, he said he didn't know if his acts were political or he didn't know the law were his acts political or official. Well, I had a long piece in just security under the Hatch Act. They were political. So um, he hurt himself. It was a free preview for prosecutors of his testimony, gave him a shot uh, at um, at cross-examining him. He was weak. Um on when he got pressed on um, issues that incriminated him, like his offer to use campaign cash to pay for things when he was talking to Georgia uh, officials. Other times he said he can't recall on key points of criminal exposure. I'll stop now. Um, on key points of criminal exposure, 
Um, he said he couldn't recall what had happened. So now he can't go to trial later if he wants to exonerate himself. Oh, suddenly I remember he's going to look like a liar. They'll say, well, a year ago when this was fresher in your mind, you said you couldn't recall how convenient. So he did a lot of harm. He may have done enough good, however, to because the legal standard is so low and the law is so favorable to federal officials on removal, he may have done enough good to remove the case. It, it's, it's a jump ball. I think he'll lose, if you force me to guess, I think he'll lose. Even if he, but even if he wins the battle, he's going to lose the war because he hurt his larger case, including the next big federal court fight. If he wins removal, will be over. Is he immune? And the judge is clearly skeptical about immunity and asked a bunch of questions suggesting even if he allows removal, when you take away that super low standard, you have the normal standard to evaluate immunity, he hurt himself. So it might turn out to be a Pyrrhic victory if it's a victory at all. He should lose, as I wrote at Just Security, because this was political and you don't get removal for political acts, only for official governmental job duties. Exactly. So, you know, this moron, as I like to call Mark the Moron Meadows, sits, um, you know, on the witness in the stand for three and a half hours. And while sitting there, of course, you know, his counsel is trying to convince the judge that as Trump's, you know, chief of staff, as his right hand man, that everything that he was doing was in his official capacity for Donald Trump. Now, the only thing that I see here is that if the judge happens to agree with the assessment of Meadows and his counsel, that it could end up being removed from the state to the federal court. And I believe that Meadows and his lawyers and Trump and their entire group there think that the federal court is a more advantageous spot for Donald, uh, for, for him to be in. A lot of pundits on television are also making um, the point that by having Meadows move the case to the federal court, that everybody thereafter then would be able to follow and that it would be advantageous to the point of not only the jury pool, but also the allegations that are being brought against them in the um, in the indictment. You agree with that? Uh, you know, I just published an analysis um, of the jury pool and 24 other questions that people have about removal. And if you look at the the Fulton County jury pool, the state court jury pool is great for the prosecutors. It was a, a like a plus 45 uh, point jurisdiction for Biden. So that means now why does that matter, Michael? Y you and I know a lot about juries. I've appeared in front of juries for decades. I've served on juries, too. 
usually I get struck, but I've served on a jury and I've been a foreman of a jury. So I've really seen it from all different sides. And of course, argued, argued to, 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 to juries. You only want to have a jury that will not nullify your case. You don't mm -hmm. want to have one Trump voter on that jury who says, you know what, I'm not going to vote for a conviction of Donald Trump no matter what. So when you're in a plus 45 point jurisdiction like Fulton County, if it stays, this is the stay in federal in state court option. If it stays in state court, um, you know, it greatly reduces the chance of uh, a jury nullification. I don't think that the Biden, these jurors are screened. We do what's called voir dire. And uh, you ask the jurors, can they be fair? And I've been doing this for more than three decades. The jurors do not lie. This is not a John Grisham novel, okay? Mm -hmm. jurors, as you know, they'll tell you, well, yeah, I voted. Can you be fair? Yes, I can be fair. Or no, I can't be fair. I love Trump too much. I can't be fair. They don't lie under oath. Still, there's a chance that someone will sneak through. But, you know, the federal removal, um, the jury pool is not that much better for Donald Trump. It's like plus 35. I can look up what my exact statistics are, but it's plus 35 for Biden. So, you know, it's not like Trump is getting something that much better in federal court. My answer is it's fine in state court. It's great in state court. It'll be just fine if it's in federal court. Probably the whole case will get moved up to federal court. The Georgia laws will still be the basis of the litigation. You've got a very good judge, Judge Steve Jones, much more experienced than Judge McAfee, the state court judge. There's there are advantages to federal court too. These are two good options, not you know, uh, one good, one bad. Obviously, I would love to have been the fly on the wall to see whether or not that the counsel for the various other defendants in this case, what their thoughts were about Meadows taking the stand, because by him taking the stand, it gives the prosecution the opportunity to question him for three and a half hours about the events of the 2020 election, uh, you know, who he spoke to, yada, 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 right? And that now puts the other defendants, not just in this Fulton County case, behind the eight ball, but what it also does if, in fact, the questions are relevant to other cases, like, for example, the Jack Smith um, federal indictment of Trump case, they could use Mark Meadows' words, his responses against Donald in that specific case. Am I not right about that? Yes, you are right. Well, then I think it was really stupid on their behalf. You agree with that? I think that it is, you know, I think that there, that it was a very, that there were no good options. No, I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared to say, to say it's stupid. Why do you think it was, do you think it was stupid? Yes, I do. Because unless he's a cooperating witness, as you stated earlier, number one, he gave prosecutors an opportunity to question him under oath 
for three and a half hours. And some of the things that he responded put him deeper into the conspiracy than what maybe they already knew. Maybe yes. they already know it, but it, but we don't know whether they did or they don't. So I'm looking at it as a third party, an outside party, and saying maybe they didn't know everything. Maybe they knew some of the stuff, but not all of it. Not only did he put himself in additional jeopardy, but he certainly opened up additional problems to all the other defendants. And again, unless he is a cooperating witness, which... I wouldn't be shocked if he isn't. Um, well, something's clearly I, going. Something's clearly on that point. Something's clearly going on with Meadows and Smith because Meadows was just as culpable as Trump. These other six unindicted co-conspirators, it's pretty clear who they all are. Giuliani, Eastman, Meadows, Chesbro, um, Powell and probably Clark. Epstein is probably Epstein is the sixth. He Smith didn't list Mark Meadows as an unindicted co-conspirator despite no. all the bad deeds. And he barely mentions him in the complaint. So clearly he's treating Meadows differently. We know there was some testimony. We know Meadows took the fifth with Willis. She's giving him no breaks. I think ultimately. Um, they decided that the chance of getting removal was important enough that it was worth those harms. Meadows is clearly, these individuals, it's not going to be the usual criminal case. They are going to testify in their own defense. Um, and so, you know, I do see your, I would not have told Meadows to testify. I would have kept my powder dry for conviction. Right. That's where it really counts, the trial. Mm -hmm. But they decided to scramble the deck. It was not stupid. I'll agree with you on this because they may get removal and they'll have all those benefits I described. Um, but I'll agree. I think it was on balance, unwise there. I okay. won't go to well, stupid. I'll go to unwise. OK, so let me ask you this then, because you brought up the Hatch Act. Would you do me a favor, because it's a little bit complicated. Can you explain to my listeners about the Hatch Act and how that will ultimately play into the reasons why Meadows will ultimately not prevail? You mean the reasons that he the reasons that he won't prevail on his immunity defenses or the reasons he'll be convicted at trial? Both. Um, it, it so. Whether Meadows' case is removed or not, um, he is very promptly going to present the court with a motion to dismiss. He's going to say, throw out my case. You ca I can't be prosecuted here. Why? Because under the Constitution, um, I am, uh, federal law is supreme. There's a portion of the Constitution known as the Supremacy Clause. That has been interpreted to, to mean that when a federal officer is doing his job and only what is necessary and what is proper, necessary and proper for his job, he cannot be uh, prosecuted by a state official. 
And what I did was necessary and proper. And here's the problem for that. That's the first hurdle. And then the second hurdle is the trial if Meadows loses on this. The reason that I don't think Meadows likely can get over that hurdle, throw my case out before the trial even starts, Judge, because of the Constitution, because what I did was necessary and proper to, for a White House chief of staff. A lot of that he did was neither necessary nor proper. That's where my big essay about the Hatch Act comes in. It is federal law that you are not allowed to do political stuff. That is not necessary and it is not proper. And in the 11th Circuit where we are, they've said that in a supremacy clause case, if you do something that is criminal, if you do something that is personal, if you do something that is malicious, if you do something that has a political motive, Balcom, uh, it's the Balcom v. Case, the Balcom case in the 11th Circuit, Balcom v. Martin. Um, you don't get a supremacy clause immunity. Well, Mark Meadows went to Georgia. He told the Georgia officials, let's use campaign funds to pay for this. Brad Raffensperger testified yesterday that was a political call. It was a campaign call. Mm -hmm. Act, federal law says you can't do the things Mark Meadows did. It was not necessary. It was not proper. He loses on immunity. How did I did I do a good job explaining that for the non-lawyers? I believe you did. I mean, I just want to go back and say that the Hatch Act began in 1939. I mean, it's not as if you could say, well, you know, it happened like, um, you know, with the overturning of the Dobbs decision and I wasn't aware of it. And so on, even though that's not a defense either. But, yeah, I mean, the whole purpose is really to um, restrict political activity of individuals principally employed by the state, by District of Columbia or, um, you know, local executive agencies. Um, it's just. That's the whole goal. I mean, there are things that you cannot do and you cannot perform like campaign related chores and other things like that. He clearly violated the Hatch Act. So I don't know. Again, it just goes back to the whole point that like you, I don't know. And I'm pretty sure that I would have said I would not recommend you taking the stand. And again, I'm referring to Mark Meadows. Yeah, I wouldn't have done it, but I admired the boldness of the move. And I see why they want to get that roughly that 10 point plus differential between the, you know, Biden plus 45 in Fulton County uh, versus Biden plus 35 in the 10 county group that the jury pool will be drawn from and all the other reasons they want to be in federal court. They think they can get the case thrown out. And a federal judge will be more fair to them on removal and, you know, all the other reasons. So it's a gamble. I, I agree with you. I wouldn't have taken the gamble. It wasn't stupid. Meadows didn't perform as well as they might have hoped. Uh, <laughs> How could he? He's a moron. He's There's not no a way clever. to describe yeah, him. He is, he's not a he clever thinks, guy. You know, the whole thing is, uh, the problem is they all think that they're clever when 
you're standing next to Donald Trump, when you're standing next to Jim Jordan or any of these other sycophants that had the power. When they were in power, they, no matter what they wanted to do, they had the ability to effectuate the result that they wanted. Now that they don't, and this is a mistake by, by the Democrats, by, you know, why are they not taking advantage of the fact that the Democrats are in power right now and they need to undo all of the damage that was done by people like Meadows, people like Donald Trump, by Bill Barr and so on. But I want to move on and ask you this because I think it's important. You've written how indispensable Fannie Willis's prosecution is for, for many reasons and that it offers insurance against Trump or another GOP president pardoning the federal cases. Is that insurance lost, you know, um, if these trials are no. actually tried in federal court? No, absolutely not, because the Constitution says a president may pardon only for offenses, quote, against the United States. Under the law of removal, the Georgia criminal... Uh, violations alleged are the ones that will be litigated. The jury verdict will be um, for Georgia uh, crimes, criminal statutes, innocent or guilty. So those are not crimes against the United States. Those are crimes against Georgia. Uh, so the federal pardon language does not apply. That doesn't mean Trump won't try some dopey argument you know, and that then will be litigated that these are crimes against the United States because the case is removed. That won't work. 99% chance that won't work. Well, I, I mean, look, I totally agree with you. And I totally agree with you that if he is successful and becomes president again, he will put another Bill Barr as the attorney general, and they will wreak havoc upon our Department of Justice and the rule of law. You know, what? one thing that we keep forgetting is that if you have a corrupt president and you have a complicit attorney general that's willing to do things that are wholly improper, like an unconstitutional remand of a U.S. citizen back to prison because they refuse to waive their First Amendment constitutional right, how do you ever stop them from doing whatever it is that they want? It's the president says so, the attorney general says what the president wants, the president gets, despite the fact that we all know that a president has absolutely no power at all, based upon the Constitution, to shut down a state case, especially the Georgia indictment here, which is exclusively state crimes. How do they get past that again? What happens when you have another Bill Barr? What do we do? Well, <laughs> you know, you've, you're, you're, you're one of the leading experts on the predations of Bill Barr, right? And I still am angered that as you should even be. Democrat, even while as many Democrats 
have come out and asked for an investigations by various different committees. None of it has taken place. I still can't get any of my FOIA documents. You know, now the DOJ, FBI are claiming that they cannot give me any of the documents in my FOIA request because it could cause national security concerns as well as the potential of loss of life for agents or uh, witnesses. Uh, you know, um, two federal, you're not alone, two federal judges, one a Republican appointee, um, one a Democrat here in, a Democratic appointee here in the District of Columbia, excoriated Barr, for false statements he made, um, resisting uh, FOIA uh, on um, materials relating to his uh, distortions of the Mueller report. So he's, it's very unusual for an attorney general to get that kind of condemnation. I think a little bit of the reason that Barr is kind of you know, he's been on a uh, redemption tour. Uh, him. Redemption. Uh, if he wants to redeem himself, come clean and tell the American public what you really did with and for Donald. I think it's been helpful to the cause that he's been endorsing the criminal prosecutions, but we should never forget what his own, uh, Barr's own misconduct was. And he was yeah. irreparably uh, tainted by the Trump years. Uh, and I certainly will never forgive him that. And I think the only way that he actually is entitled to redemption is he has to own what he did. He has to come clean with what he did. And just the fact that you turn around and you say, oh, I told Donald he lost the election, or I turn around and think that these uh, cases are um, justified and that they are proper, that doesn't give him uh, acceptance back into polite society. He was involved in a lot of this stuff, and he either needs to come clean or sit back and shut up and be the pariah to American democracy that so many of us consider him to be. My, it's Like I said, my opinion. But you don't just get to, you know, come try to... You know, come clean on something that nobody gives a shit really what Bill Barr has to say. You think Fonnie Willis decided to bring this indictment because Bill Barr said it was justified? Do you think Alvin Bragg brought his case or Jack Smith brought those indictments simply because Bill Barr said, hey, that they're fair, reasonable, legal, etc.? No, it was happening anyway. So he took the popularist view. He needs to come clean. And as far as I'm concerned, the Democrats should call a hearing and bring him in and force him to testify to what he did. I um, Just think about how much we could learn. How much do you think we could learn if Bill Barr actually came clean? I think that it's important now to, and you, you do get some credit for this. I'm just working on a piece on how Alvin Bragg and his case, which you're central to, were the pathbreakers, and people were so critical of that case at the time, but they don't notice the ways that, like Alvin had a huge win uh, before Judge Hellerstein on all of those arguments people were saying, removal, mm -hmm. preemption. I said at the time, that's bullshit, and Michael has brought Alvin a very good case, uh, and it is one.
And Hellerstein threw all that out. But I think it's important to look, Michael, to 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 use our energy to look forward. You are entitled to relief in your litigation. I want, and you know I've supported you strongly. But I want to keep the eye on the ball of these 2020 federal interference cases. So that's where I'm I that's where I think, you know, you're dedicating the podcast energy, and that's where we should be looking. Uh, not uh, and in Congress, that means fighting off. Did you see that Jim Jordan is attacking the same way he attacked Bragg? Now he's attacking Fonnie Willis. Did you see that? I did. And what did we expect Jim Jordan to do? What are we expecting these same MAGA, you know, uh, Republican members of Congress who are sycophants and loyal to the cause? Exactly this. They're going to attack Jack Smith. They attack Fonnie Willis. They attack Alvin Bragg. They attack me. They attack you. They attack anybody that makes a cogent argument as to why Donald Trump and these other 18 defendants need to be held accountable in this case. They attack anybody that brings um, any other cases like um, myself or other individuals that will be testifying, whether it's in the criminal case of Alvin Bragg or the civil case of Tish James. They just attack anyone on behalf of their supreme leader, of their Fuhrer. And it's scary because the end result is really the end of democracy. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, I get a lot of social media responses. You know, sometimes you say things, it seems so hyperbolic and it's just not possible. How come people don't understand that democracy, true democracy, is an experiment? And it's the greatest experiment gone right in the history of the world. And as we try to promote democracy and rights around the world and here in our own country, we're going backwards in our own country. The fact that my daughter has less rights than my mother, the fact that our civil rights cases are now moving backwards as a result of the Dobbs decision. This is not a joke. We are going in the wrong direction. And it's the most... Uh important. That's why it's so important that this first trial of Donald Trump for the assault on his democracy, the federal case, go forward. And and your case that you are testifying in for Alvin Bragg is also important. I'm going to explain why. The Jack Smith case, in my view, is maybe the most important trial for democracy uh, since, let's see, uh, 399, 422, 2004, in 2,422 years. Since the trial, this may be the most historic democracy trial since the trial of Socrates. In 399 BC. Why do I say that? Because American democracy, I know it sounds hyperbolic, and we've had other very important trials for our democracy. Uh, but American democracy represents, I think, the it's the world's uh, longest um, 
uh, successful mass experiment. You, I put uh, the direct democracy, that's different, uh, kind of a, a, a Democratic-founded funded, uh, uh, Republican form of government. It's the world's longest-running experiment with modern representative democracy um, that, that we have, almost 250 years, counting from the Constitution. If you want to count from the Articles of Confederacy a little longer. It's been a model for democracies all over the world. American democracy has helped transform the globe together with our economic system, our the culture, both of which are intertwined with democracy. Um, we've reset um, the, um, the model, particularly in the post-World War II era, really engaging in World War I, we took on our global role. Um, as I see American history, we dealt with the critical flaw in our democracy um, through the Civil War. We then retrenched, consolidated. We went out to the world in world, starting with World War I, so over 100 years now, where we've really fought for global democracy. With all our imperfections, we did the internal battle of the civil rights struggle. We're still an imperfect democracy. That engine that has transformed the world and made representative democracy the de facto competitive model with aut the autocracy of a Russia or a China, with the economic and all the other impacts that come with it, is on trial now. If Donald Trump is not held accountable, it may be the case in this and the other cases, including your and Alvin Bragg's case, it may be the case that American democracy fails, that this historic experiment, this perfection of Greek democracy, a mode of government and, and the Roman Republic, a hybrid mode over. of government is over. This trial will be this first out trial, and then I'm gonna come this Jack Smith trial, will be looked at as determining these world historic events stretching over that are the result of millennia of development. It's the second op-ed gotten out of the podcast, right? Can, can I ask you? Can I ask you this? Because you wait, brought up Jimmy wait, Jordan. I have to pay you a compliment. And Alvin Bragg, I have one last thing to say. I'm using up all our time. The model for this, the pathbreaker, the thing that opened the way, it drew a lot of heat and fire. The model for accountability, but also Trump's model for democratic interference, election interference, was the 2016 election interference case that Alvin Bragg is bringing, covering up, falsifying documents to cover up hush money payments that could have tilted the 2016 election where you're the key witness. So don't under, and he's locked in a date in March and he's handing it over to Smith. So don't underestimate the importance of the Bragg case in setting up this historic trial that will begin on March, uh, early March. What is the date? March okay. 4th? March 3rd? March, yes. yes. March 3rd. Um, March, yeah. So look, you brought up Jim Jordan, and that sparks a question that I have for you, because you recently wrote in an op-ed, and I'm going to quote, that Congress cannot use its investigative power to engage in law enforcement, but that's exactly what Jim Jordan is doing again. Your words. 
do me a favor, unpack for my listeners what's happening with his committee and how this ties into the GOP's attempt to derail any investigation into Trump and his MAGA cohorts. Well, um, the NS March 4th, by the way, and Super Tuesday is March 5th. Um, so what Jim Jordan is doing is just what he tried with Bragg. I mean, there's so many parallels between Bragg and Smith, and it's so important, so useful that we saw that bag of tricks. So now we're ready for it uh, with Fonnie Willis. Um, so and they're trying something similar with Smith. They want to cut off his funding. Um Jim Jordan is attempting openly on the same day that Donald Trump gets booked, he, he sends a letter to uh, Fonnie Willis asking for all kinds of internal information and complaining and making insinuations about her case. He's just operating as an enabler and a blocker and an obstructor for Donald Trump, I mean, it couldn't be more dick naked if you read the letter or you look at the timing, what he's doing. Uh, he, he's trying to interfere with that another, that other historic case that Willis is bringing. Smith's case is laser focused to get to trial fast. The Willis case is the same as Smith's at the state level, but it's huge. It's very important because it gets at the full scope of the conspiracy. You know, even if you take care of uh, Donald Trump, you hold him accountable in a court of law, there's still the problem that there are hundreds of people, Michael, throughout our system who aided and abetted, who are the cooperators with Donald Trump. That's what Willis is trying to get at. That's what Jim Jordan is trying to frustrate. In my view, it's against the law because the Mazars case and many other precedents say that you cannot interfere in our federalist system. You cannot unduly interfere without a legitimate purpose mm -hmm. for the state prosecution. That's what Jordan did with Alvin Bragg. It's so obvious he was playing games. That's what he's trying to do with Fonnie Willis. That's what his cohort is trying to do by cutting off the funding for Jack Smith. It won't succeed, um, even the MAGA caucus in the House of Representatives is not that uh, powerful. Jim Jordan gets why these cases are so historic and important. He's putting his thumb on the scale of autocracy, okay, not democracy. He's and yet fighting he's with still, the power that he sure, had. But Norm, yet he's still the chair of several different, right, uh, the House Judiciary or oversight. I mean, this is just insane. The fact that anybody would even want him as a member. I mean, do you care more about Donald Trump or you care about democracy? It's That's what this entire election should be predicated on. But, you know, Norm, the hour goes by real quick. You and I can talk uh, for, for hours. And so on. I have one last question for you. And I've asked this question to a lot of people because, you know, there's a lot of noise um, of these Georgia defendants who may or may not be ready to, um, I hate the word, but I'm going to use it, flip on Donald or provide, you know, testimony against him. Who do you think is most likely to turn? 
And what would the information that they provide do for the prosecution? You may have seen on MSNBC with Ali Velshi, I had said that I believe um, Meadows is certainly one, Giuliani is certainly another, because Rudy actually knows the system um, better than most of these people, and he knows what happens if you don't. But your estimation, the great Norm Eisen, who do you think is the first to flip? I think the first... I think the first to flip already flipped, and that's Meadows. Because I believe he's, I mean, it's a totally messed up situation. And Jack Smith did not get a very good bargain. We've talked about this based on the testimony that we saw yesterday. In fact, coming back to your question, I didn't think of it, but maybe that's the reason that it really was stupid to testify for Meadows to testify in court because he made himself unusable by Jack Smith. Um, he may have, but he may have already been unusable because Jack Smith might have gotten an order, a 6002 order, so he can't, to force Meadows' testimony, he can't use it now. Um, so putting Meadows flipping to the side, I think what you can, what you can look for to cooperate against the first to flip against Trump will be um, one of these lawyers that they'll crack under the pressure who are seeking speedy trial. Powell, Eastman, mm -hmm. Chesbro, you know, by getting a speedy trial, you also get a speed, you, you, you're also first in line to get a deal, right? So if Chesbro can negotiate a no-jail plea, for example, and simply get in there and testify and be a tour guide to the conspiracy, um, I think that's a good deal for him. So I'm looking for those lawyers. The lawyers are weak. Eastman, Chesbro, Powell, they have nothing to do. Jenna Ellis, she's another defendant. They have nothing to do with Donald Trump today. It's not like Boris Epstein who's still joined at the hip or Walt Nauta mm -hmm. in the Mar-a-Lago case. You know, you yourself are a lawyer, like my friend John Dean, the two most notable lawyers who turned their back on uh, presidents and cooperated. I've already explained how I think you're appearing as a witness in the Bragg case opened the door for this historic these historic, uh, world historic uh, Smith and Willis trials. Um, lawyers know better. They know better. And so, of course, Epstein is also a lawyer. Um, I think one of the lawyers, that's where I'm looking. And there's a history, by the way, of making RICO charges, and then the DA will cut deals if you're willing to cooperate. So why wouldn't Chesbro or, you know, Eastman... Uh, or even uh, Powell, Giuliani, Trump's holding a fundraiser. Why doesn't Giuliani take the money and run? Get a good lawyer. One of them gets a good lawyer and tries to negotiate a global deal, a global deal, right? Because you're also, they're also unindicted. Look at that unindicted co-conspirator list. Giuliani, Chesbro, Eastman, Powell. I mean, these are people who are, you know, who have federal exposure, they're state defendants. You hear what I'm saying? It's logical. I absolutely do. It's totally logical. The great Norm Eisen, thank you so much 
for again joining us. You know, listen, I could have you on every sing I could have you on every single day in order to help <laughs> us to explain this Michigas that you know Donald is chaos that Donald is absolutely thrusting on our country. Norm, thank you so much Thanks, for Michael. everything that you do. Thank you for you and Brookings and all the great work that you're doing and your op-eds, loving them. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Well, that's all the time that we have today, folks. So if you're enjoying these legal deep dives, please do me a favor. Go to my Twitter, I mean, sorry, X page, and leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to answer it in the next indictment watch. So remember that the wheels of justice may turn slowly, but remember what I always say, they nevertheless come to turn, and I'll be with you every step of the way, giving you the straight, raw, dope on what can be seen like complicated legal maneuvering. So stay tuned Friday for my conversation with the always entertaining Michael Steele, who has a few things to say about last week's GOP debate and the fucking annoying Vivek Ramaswamy. And as always, my friends, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek, our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. This is my